Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, today we're continuing our examination of massacres of Black African Americans down through history. And, um, you know, we looked at massacres that resulted from greed and land appropriation, as well as massacres that were a result of domestic terrorism that uh, were related, uh, that was related to neighborhood integration. Today, we're going to turn our attention to massacres related to labor and the attempts to unionize for fair working conditions and wages. Now, um, there's a quote by a man named Blauner that comes to mind when uh, I started thinking about this topic. And he said, if there is any one key to the systemic privilege that undergirds a racial capitalist society, it is the special advantage of the white population in the labor market. That's a good quote, Aunt Carol, and I'm going to be honest with you and our listeners. Before being tasked with doing the research for this episode, I didn't know a lot about the fight for unionized labor and how deep the African-American story in this country goes hand in hand with it. But where do we start? Let's start at the beginning. Well, we'll have to go all the way back. 400 years, and um, that's 400 years of enslaved Black Americans forming the labor engine that fueled America's growth as an economic world power. Now, according to the author Edward Baptist, from 1783 to 1861, the number of enslaved people in the United States increased five times over because they were able to pick cotton which at the time was the most widely traded commodity, they picked it faster and more efficiently than any other method. So by 1840, the North had built a complex industrialized economy on the backs of enslaved people and the cotton they picked. Now, without the benefit of centuries of unpaid labor, America's economy probably would not have placed it in the globally powerful position that it holds now. So what we're what you're saying, Aunt Carol, is that the American superpower as the world knows it today came became what it is on the backs of unpaid manpower, aka African American chattel slavery. That is correct. That is very correct, my dear niece. Now, after slavery ended, the expectation was that Black African Americans would have an even chance to enter the paid workforce and begin earning their way into the middle class. That was not the case because at every turn, Black African-American workers encountered systemic racism in the workplace, in labor unions, businesses, and the corporate halls. 
But didn't the 13th and 14th Amendment take care of that? Didn't racism just disappear? Now, I'm being, I'm being very sarcastic because we all know the answer to that question, and it's no. But can you tell us what happened to the dream of Reconstruction? Well, Courtney, during Reconstruction, a middle class did begin to rise among Black African Americans. However, it was quickly snuffed out. During that short 11 years of Reconstruction, political, economic, and education gains were made as Black African Americans and some progressive white Republicans attempted to move forward from slavery. But as we know from other episodes we've done, the economic opportunities were short-lived as Southern planners began exerting their power again under President Andrew Johnson, who wiped out most of the Reconstruction era gains and Jim Crow laws and Black codes were instituted across the South. Exactly. It seemed just as African Americans were gaining a foothold, the states would use the law to stop them. The very constitutions in each state would stop them, not to mention the threat of physical violence and death that was only being helped along with the ambivalence or backdoor dealings of the federal government. I see you, Rutherford B. Hayes. Oh, he's always working in the background. (laughs) Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes. Oh, boy, our our man. Now, as Black African-Americans sought respectability and parity in business, politics, education, and industry, at every turn, they encountered systemic racism in the workplace, in labor unions, and so on. So uh, it was an uphill battle, and it's still being fought. And even more insidious, as African-Americans sought these jobs and to become productive citizens in the country that enslaved them only a few years before, the stereotypes of African-Americans being lazy, shiftless, not wanting to work as a narrative was pushed to both justify racism and these codes and laws, as well as uh, prison uh, work crews as well. We've also talked about that in the episode. We did. We did. And it's really hard to understand how Black African-Americans could be uh, stereotyped as shiftless and lazy, considering the fact that had it not been for them, there would be no cotton industry. Now, speaking of that cotton industry, it was still king in the South after the Civil War. And Southern planters were intent on having cheap labor to pick it. So they institutionalized uh, uh, what's called the sharecropping system. Nothing more than what I consider to be legalized enslavement as a way of keeping Black African-Americans entrenched as their workforce. Now, later, you're going to elaborate on how that system worked, right? Yes, I am. But, and Carol, can you share more ways that Black labor was pretty much kept from working outside of where whites felt they should or in their place? Well, there were other ways that that was done. Another way that labor was stifled was through those black codes I mentioned earlier. White businesses prohibited or restricted when and where black African-Americans could work or do business with them. Now, because of the strife caused by these restrictions and terror inflicted on them, such as lynching and having their towns looted and burned, Black African-Americans began a seven decades long shift moving north, west, and to the Midwest. And that was known as, you and I know, the Great Migration. And they did that searching for viable work and for freedom from violence. And the Great Migration is one of the largest migrations of African-Americans 
uh, ever. Many scholars consider it as two waves between 1916 and 1930, and then from 1940 to 1970. The Great Migration saw a total of 6 million African Americans leave the South, and most African Americans in the North, Midwest, and West, like you mentioned, can trace their family's migration story through that time uh, period. One of our favorite books, as well as the uh, favorite book of our Why Are They So Angry Learning community is The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, which goes in depth about this time in America. Yes, that's one of the books. And as we had talked about in some of our other episodes, our own family uh, was part of that first wave of migration. Your grandparents uh, moved from South Carolina, both your mo- on your maternal and paternal side, moved from South Carolina in the early uh, half of the 20th century. Now, Black African-Americans were traveling north to many areas where jobs were available. Now, California had a burgeoning defense industry, and that attracted workers from Texas and Louisiana. Now, in the Northeast, shipyards and steel mill jobs beckoned people from the eastern seaboard states like Florida and North and South Carolina, like I mentioned about your, uh, our great, my parents and your grandparents, and the Midwest workers from Alabama and Georgia gravitated to the auto industry in Detroit. And although like many migration stories and immigration stories, these people had hope in their hearts for a new dream, African-Americans were quick to be kind of hit in the face with Northern racism. It was very different than the Southern racism they were used to. That's true. That's true. Now, at the same time of this mass exodus from the South, fledgling unions began to be formed in those industrial cities that and states that I talked about. And those unions were being formed to protect jobs in those northern cities. Now, the interesting thing is that um, unionization really did not get a foothold in the South. But Courtney, I think you have a story about an attempt to unionize farm workers in the South, which, as I mentioned, was a rarity. And I'm intrigued. Tell us about it. Well, it all took place in a town called Elaine, Arkansas. Now, what happened in Elaine, Arkansas, beginning on September 30th, 1919, has been labeled as many things, from a race riot to a simple confrontation between men, even a heroic stand against the rise of communism in Arkansas after World War I. But when you look at the facts, it was plain and simply a massacre a massacre of over a hundred people for the sole purpose of maintaining the status quo of white supremacy and black subjugation in the South. Now from the end of reconstruction up until the 20th century, sharecropping was how many, if not most African-Americans made their living in the South. Now, although the beginnings of the great migration were apparent for a lot, but for a lot of the inhabitants, they stayed working the land much like their even one or two generations back family members did before them. And despite the fact that slavery was over, in some cases, a lot had not changed. It just had a new name and that was called sharecropping. So I'll give you a brief explanation about how sharecropping works. And I want to give a shout out to the Arkansas State Encyclopedia website that gave this wonderful breakdown to give this understanding. Now, under the share under the system of sharecropping, a poor farmer who didn't own any land could work a plot belonging to a landowner. And get this, it was normally a descendant of a person who owned their family before. 
Oh, now, so you're saying the sharecroppers were formerly enslaved people for the most part. For the most part, they were the children and grandchildren of formerly enslaved, but people still had their grandparents and parents alive. So they remembered staying on that land and who owned that land. So it's like nothing really changed. Now, the farmer would receive a share of the profits as a payment, but here's the trick. It takes seeds, land, water, tools, and other materials, as well as a place to live to maintain a crop. Now, these items would be deducted from the share of anything or the proceeds of anything that the farmer would, would earn. So if I earned $100, but all my supplies and everything else came to $98, I would only get $2 and the farmer would get the rest. Hmm. So this sounds like everything is in the benefit of the landowner and obviously not the sharecropping farmer. Pretty much. And in some situations, the sharecropper was powerless. If the harvest was bad, the sharecropper could actually end up in debt. So going back to that $100, if there was no, you know, no crop that year or a bad crop, or if the landowner told you there was a bad crop, you got nothing and remained in debt and you had to work off to pay for the debt. Now, such debts were virtually impossible to overcome. So sharecropping often created situations where fam uh, families, uh, farmers and their families were locked into a life of poverty. So in this case, sharecropping got a new name, which was debt bondage. So it's a unending spiral of debt and nobody could get out of it. So sounds like being enslaved to me. Exactly. And this was a way of life for many black and some white sharecroppers in Elaine, Arkansas. And to top that off, besides the debt, many of the farmers knew they were being cheated out of profits because they could not read. And mix that in with the fear of questioning the word of a white landowner they were kind of locked and bound to whatever the landowner said goes. Now, on the occasions that they would receive money, it would often come late. And by the time they would be paid, they would have incurred a brand new debt waiting to be paid. So whatever money they did earn had to pay the new debt and the cycle started all over again. That must have, oh boy, I can't imagine that was just pretty dreary lifestyle. Um, so, so what did these people try to, did they try to do anything about this? Well, mustering the courage to fight back, farmers led by a man by the name of Robert Hill formed the Progressive Farmers Union in 1919. Now, in previous months of, of that year, Red Summer had been raging high in cities like Washington, D.C., Chicago, Illinois, Knoxville, Tennessee, and the like. And with labor conflicts escalating throughout the country in all races at the end of World War I, the government and businesses interpreted these demands of you know, good labor and unionization as an attack of communism um, from communist countries like Russia, and the South even took it even further when black soldiers came back from World War I and they were less submissive and were not in line with the attitude of the Jim Crow society. Now unions such as the progressive farmers represented a threat because it was blacks and whites working together. And again, those veterans who were not trying to back down. 
So this to a lot of white Southerners felt like the blacks were unpatriotic and that they were disrespecting the flag and disrespecting the troops by trying to unionize and bringing in this foreign concept. So it was their patriotic duty to stomp out any signs of blacks organizing labor unions. That's an interesting concept. Okay. Communism and labor unions related. But anyway, what came next? Well, despite the risk, on September 30th, 1919, the Progressive Farmers Union held a meeting of about 100 men at a church in Hoopspur, Arkansas, which was a small town in Phillips County, a couple, about five miles outside of Elaine. Now, they knew there were probably going to be trouble either with white men trying to infiltrate as spies or just showing up just bold, strong, and wrong to cause trouble. Now, the union posted armed guards outside of the church just to make sure nothing went awry. But just as they predicted, trouble showed up in the form of two white men, W.A. Adkins and Sheriff's Deputy Charles Pratt. Now, history is a little murky on the third part. Now, we know there was a third man in the car, but we don't have his name. And in some sources, he's listed as a white man. Other sources, he's listed as a black man. And even more sources list him as a man of biracial descent. But needless to say, when they showed up at the church, things took a turn. One of the white men asked the guards, are you going coon hunting, boys? And the posted guards did not respond. They knew not to, to do anything. But in the midst of more heated words being exchanged, gunfire then began to be exchanged. Hmm, well, it's going downhill from here. Now, another debate exists as, as to who fired first. Now, in when the smoke cleared, W.A. Atkins, the man who kind of sent the little coon joke, um, was the one who had been killed, and Charles Pratt had been injured. Now, the third man, and this is how we know there was a third man, someone drove the car off into the night with the occupants, heading to tell of what happened and, of course, to get medical attention for the man who was wounded. But as is the case in these stories, word spread fast to the wrong people. Hmm. The next morning, an all-white posse, no one, they were not law enforcement, some law enforcement, some just randoms, showed up to arrest suspects that, um, that they thought were responsible for the shooting. Now, though they encountered little opposition from the Black community, in fact, the Blacks outnumbered whites 10 to 1 in this area, um, whites in the area believed that there was soon going to be an insurrection. Hmm. Now, the news spread once again, and now over a thousand white men who came from surrounding counties and as far away as Mississippi and Tennessee, you know, came down on Elaine. Now, upon re reaching Elaine, Arkansas, the mob began killing Black African Americans, ransacking their homes, and as the word spread, more white residents came armed. The mob then turned its attention back to those who were fighting back. So there were people in Elaine who were fighting back because they're noticing this mob of white men from nowhere are killing us one by one. Now, meanwhile, white local newspapers further fanned the flames of tension by reporting that Black African Americans were causing an uprising in Elaine. So, and they were killing white people. 
By October the 2nd, 1919, U.S. Army troops arrived in the lane and the white mobs began to disperse at the site of the, the troops. Now, federal troops rounded up and placed several hundred Black African-Americans in temporary stocks where there were reports of torture. Now, hold up, Courtney. I'm, I'm confused here. The mob was made up of white people. They, but they were dispersed and the Black African-Americans were put in the stockades. Exactly. Now, the men who were arrested were not released until they had a white employer vouch for them. And if you had no white person to vouch for you, you were just stuck. And there is also considerable evidence that many of the soldiers sent to quell the violence joined the mob. Evidence shows that mobs of white soldiers slaughtered African-Americans in Elaine. Mm. For example, H.F. Smitty, one of the white witnesses to the massacre, swore in an eyewitness account in 1921 that several hundred of them, and them meaning soldiers, began hunting Negroes and shooting them as they came across them. Mm. Now, anecdotal evidence also suggests, once again, the troops from Camp Pike indiscriminately killed and tortured African-Americans in their cult in their custody. Now in 1925, Sharp Dunway, an employee of the Arkansas Gazette, alleged the soldiers in Elaine committed one murder after another with all the calm and deliberation in the world, either too heartless to realize the enormity of their crimes or too drunk on moonshine to give a darn. Well, I don't think the drunk on moonshine relieves them of the responsibility. Um, massacring Americans. Mm, mm, mm. Now, when the dust settled in Elaine um, and the toll was taken, several hundred African-Americans were now in custody and the soldiers sent to quell the riots went along with the torture and killing of African-Americans as well. Not one white citizen was arrested, but 122 African-Americans were put behind bars and shipped to the county jail the most famous group of those men would become known as the Elaine 12. Those men were Frank Moore, Frank Hicks, Ed Hicks, Joe Knox, Paul Hall, Ed Coleman, Alfred Banks, Ed Ware, William Wordlaw, Albert Gills, Joe Fox, and John, John Martin. Say their names, say their names. Now on October 31st, 1919, a Phillips County grand jury charged all 122 African-Americans with crimes stemming from racial disturbance, stemming from the racial disturbance with crimes such as night riding, which is akin to terroristic threats and up to second degree and first degree murder. The trials began the very next week with John Elvis Miller leading the prosecution and white random attorneys from Helena, Arkansas appointed by circuit court judge J.M. Jackson to represent those accused. One attorney, Jacob Fink, who was appointed to represent one of the 12, Frank Hicks, admitted to the jury he had not interviewed any witnesses. He made no motion to change the venue, nor did he challenge a single prospective jury taking the first 12 that just showed up. Well, I'll tell you what. He should have been on the prosecution's <laughs> team and not on the defense team. But anyway, what happened next? Well, by November 5th, 1919, all 12, all 12 men of the Elaine 12 had been given trials and convicted of murder in less than 20 minutes. 
and they were all sentenced to die in the electric chair. Oh my goodness. Now, as a result, 65 other men who had been arrested along with them quickly entered plea bargains and accepted sentences of up to 21 years for second degree murders that they may not have even committed uh, just to avoid execution. Now, something had to be done. The Black African-Americans who were actual victims in this massacre were once again being faced with the loss of their freedom and in some cases their lives. Now, when we come back from the break, I will tell you who stepped up for the Elaine 12 and what was their eventual fate. Well, the Elaine 12 sound like they are in for a lot of trouble. And once again, Although I am shocked and dismayed by the story, I am not surprised because we have been talking about massacres and usually what we see in these stories is that the very people who are the victims, the Black African-Americans, the tables are turned on them and they become the guilty party. So let's take a break, take a deep breath and come back to hear about the Elaine 12. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, my dear niece, we are back. When we left off, we had 12 men convicted and facing death in the electric chair. That's right. The Elaine 12 had been sentenced to death in less than 20 minutes, causing 87 other prisoners in police custody facing serious charges to make shaky plea deals, feeling that alive in prison with the chance of getting out was better than a meeting with the electric chair. But news of these unfair and hasty trials, as well as the massacre, was starting to reach very powerful and very well-connected ears. Um, as soon as the, and very soon, the Elaine 12 would have very powerful allies. You see, the story being painted in Elaine and spread out among white citizens was that the Progressive Farmers Union was not a union at all, but a powerful group of Negro communist farmers who were instructing normally well-behaved Black African-Americans in the area to rise up and attack white people. Mm, that would make them very powerful, <laughs> considering how true. little, yes, if it were true there, uh, back at that time period, there was not a lot of power being held by Black African Americans, but I guess you got to have a scare story. So what happened next? Now, in a quote given to the Helena World newspaper in October 1919 by E.M. Allen, and E.M. Allen really wasn't anyone of that much importance. Maybe he was in his own mind, but he was a planter, a real estate developer, and he became the spokesperson for the Phillips County white community. And his quote was as follows. The present trouble with the Negroes in Phillips County is not a race riot. It is a deliberately planned insurrection of the Negroes against whites, directed by an organization known as the Progressive Farmers Household Union of America, established for the purpose of banding Negroes together together for the killing of white people. Hmm. Okay. Well, I bet there was a constitution and some uh, bylaws written exactly along those lines. But anyway, I jest. 
On the other hand, the NAACP in New York sent their own field secretary, Walter White, to investigate the events in Elaine, and he contested the allegations from the onset. White wrote in the Chicago Daily News on October 19th, 1919, that the belief that there had been some sort of an insurrection was, and I quote, only the figment of the imagination of Arkansas whites and not based in facts. He said white men in Helena told him that on more than one occasion that more than 100 Negroes had been killed. Now, I'm sure you're wondering how Walter White was able to get these white planters and citizens to open up to him, especially since he was a black man working for the NAACP. Well, it just so happened that Mr. White was of biracial ancestry favoring his European side. He had bright blonde hair and very bright blue eyes, along with very light skin. And with his his appearance, he was able to infiltrate and get some of the most disturbing information on the massacre. And that's how we have that number of over 100 being killed, because these men would just open up to Mr. White. Now, in a both scary and strange turn of events, rumors began to swirl around town that there was a black man passing for white in Elaine, and Walter knew it was time for him to leave on the first train home. But as he boarded the train, the conductor asked, you know, why aren't you staying for the fun since there was an N-word pretending to be white? Once he was found, you know, he listed what they were going to do to him. Now, Walter White politely declined and was happy to be on his way back to Chicago. Well, I guess he figured out that the uh, person they were looking for was, was him. him. Hmm. Now, famed journalist and anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells Barnett secretly interviewed some of the prisoners in the Helena uh, jail, which she produced a pamphlet called the Arkansas Race Riot. And this also worked uh, challenging the allegations of the so-called insurrection and documented the torture that the African-American prisoners were suffering. The Arkansas Conference on Negro Organizations and the National Equal Rights League joined together to hire Scipio Jones as a defense attorney for all 99 of the convicted men. The NAACP hired former state attorney general George W. Murphy as a defense attorney for the Elaine 12 exclusively. So they will be working together. Now, some fun facts about George C. Murphy, besides being the former attorney general for the state of Arkansas and now being a lawyer, he also had run for governor and was a former Confederate soldier now, okay I know <laughs> this is going to be a switcheroo so a confederate soldier is going to be defending these people black african-americans who are supposedly out to kill murder and maim white folks well, he had a love of the law and a love of justice more than, I guess, the love of racism. And he saw a lot of discrepancies in this court proceeding. So together, him and Scipio Jones worked together to have a two-pronged defense. And it's a very, very in-depth defense. And I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Their initial task was to appeal the sentences given to the Elaine 12 and ask for new trials. So they reached out to the governor at the time, Governor Brow of Arkansas, who permitted a stay of execution to allow the lawyer team to set up a new appeal. 
Now, for the next five years, the cases for the Elaine 12 were mired in litigation as Murphy and Jones fought to save the men. Several of the issues that they were talking about is that the degree of murder was never specified by, you know, the original judge. So it was kind of like a trial first degree, second degree, third degree murder, none of that. It was the electric chair or bust. And so that was totally unconstitutional and totally unfair. Now, as they moved on throughout the case, working on the two separate tracks, splitting the, the 12 into six and six, Murphy actually ended up getting ill and dying on May 3rd, 1920, leaving young Scipio Jones to be the principal counsel for not only the Elaine 12, but the 87 other black men who he was working with. Wow, this couldn't be any uh, more bizarre than a movie script. Uh, again, fact, way more complicated and way more uh, dramatic than what we would see in the motion pictures. Well, during this time, young Sibyl Jones, it, it might have felt like a very scary movie. His life was threatened on a daily basis, often multiple times a day. So when he would sleep before trial dates, he would sleep in a new black family's house every night so he wouldn't be found or attacked. Now, once again, the convictions were affirmed, um, but the governor stepped in once again and did another stay of execution. Now, by the time we reached 1923, I think both the defendants, the prosecution, and the state of Arkansas were just tired of the pursuit of Scipio Jones. Now, by March 1923, Scipio Jones entered into negotiations to have all the defendants released, but he was able to just to have six released. Now, the other six were given what was called an indefinite furlough by the governor at the time, Thomas McRae. So they were released under the guise of, if we wanted to try you again, you're still technically prisoners you're on a furlough from prison now eventually governor mccray pardoned all 87 elaine defendants including the gentlemen that were in jail this was hours before governor elect thomas terrell a clan member assumed office now during his first speech he said that it would be his top priority to put all 12 of the elaine 12 back in prison but not to end this story with the shallow threats of a racist because that never happened i'm proud to say Aunt carol and listeners that the elaine 12 were honored on november 5th 2019 when they became a permanent part of the arkansas civil rights heritage trail markers commemorating each of them were unveiled at the university of arkansas at little rock's annual arkansas civil rights heritage trail induction ceremony Woo. This is amazing. So we have the men exonerated. Um, no one was executed. However, we still had over 100 Black African-Americans who were um, massacred and no one paid the price for that. Um, although I'm sure our listeners are shocked about the Elaine massacre. They're shocked about this trial. They're shocked about how long it took to exonerate these men. Um, the intimidation, violence, and murder that grew out of labor disputes or attempts to unionize actually were more common than most people realize. So let me tell you about a few massacres that happened just because Black African Americans were seeking better working conditions and pay. Um, some of these as surprising and amazing as the 
Elaine Massacre. So let's take a look at the November 23rd, 1887 Thibodeau Massacre. Black African-American Louisiana sugarcane workers in cooperation with the racially integrated Knights of Labor had gone on strike at the beginning of November 1887 over their meager pay. And that pay was issued in what was called scrip, not cash. Now scrip, was redeemable only at the company store where, unfortunately, excessive prices were charged. On November 23rd, the Louisiana militia, aided by bands of prominent citizens, shot and killed 30 to 60 unarmed, striking Black African-American sugar workers in this massacre. Now, the union died with the strikers and the assassins, as usual, went unpunished. There was no federal inquiry, and even the coroner's inquest refused to point a finger at the murderers, and one of whom was sugar plantation owner Andrew Price. Uh, he had been among those attackers that morning, and obviously he didn't get punished because he won a seat in Congress the next year. Lucky him. But, and Carol, were there times when white allies stood with African Americans and also lost their lives? Yes, there were. Yes, there were, my dear niece. Uh, the Bugalusa labor massacre is an example. This was an attack on interracial labor solidarity. In November 1919, that fateful year that we keep hearing about where so much happened in racial strife, uh, Bugalusa, Louisiana had its own uprising. Now, agents of the Great Southern Labor uh, Lumber Company formed a gang to threaten African-American labor organizer Saul Dacus. Now, he was trying to form a union of Black laborers at the sawmill where workers toiled under very, very dangerous conditions. Now, on November 21st, company hired gunmen showed up at Dacus's home and a shootout ensued. Now, he and his family survived that shootout that evening. Now, the next day on November 22nd, Dacus bravely walked through town accompanied by white supporters and allies in the labor movement. Determined to undermine any efforts at interracial solidarity, the Great Southern Lumber Company uh, had a gang and they murdered four of those white allies, including the American Federation of Labor District Representative. Fortunately for Dacus and his family, they were able to escape to New Orleans, but sadly, those allies had been killed. That is so tragic, Aunt Carol, and I'm sure you have one more to round us out for this episode. I do. I do. I have one more. And what something to keep in mind, Courtney, is the fear of the interracial solidarity. These companies that didn't want unions to form, they especially were concerned when Black African Americans Americans and whites teamed up because that that uh, was an extreme threat to them. Um, speaking of threats, let's talk about the East St. Louis riot. And this was actually a series of outbreaks of labor and race-related violence uh, by white Americans who murdered between 40 and 250 Black African Americans in late May and early July 1917. And another 6,000 Black African-Americans were left homeless with the burning and vandalism 
uh, of their neighborhoods that cost approximately $400,000. And that would have been almost $8 million in, two, uh, in uh, 2021, uh, similar to what happened in Tulsa, where folks were burned out of their homes and their businesses. Now, the events took place in and near East St. Louis, Illinois. And that's an industrial city on the east bank of the Mississippi River, directly opposite the city of St. Louis, Missouri. The July 1917 episode in particular was marked by white-led violence throughout the city and a multi-day destruction and carnage uh, that's been described as the worst case of labor-related violence in the 20th century American history. And in the aftermath, the East St. Louis Chamber of Commerce called for the resignation of the local police chief because officers were told not to shoot white citizens and they were unable to suppress the violence and destruction. The number of black people left the, the city permanently and East St. Louis has really never recovered. Our listeners may recall that Michael Brown was fatally shot by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, which is only 13 miles from East St. Louis. And Ferguson is well known as a sundown town where Black African Americans were expected to get out of town before sundown. So the racial unrest only a few miles from Ferguson definitely would be understandable. East St. Louis was pretty much similar to that town. Wow. Now, listeners, I know these past couple of episodes have been very heavy, and we have a few more that we need to talk about. But talking about these dark parts of history are needed. Now, can you imagine how far we'd be if none of these massacres happened, or even at the very minimum that we were taught about our history in school? Just some food for thought. Yes, knowing that people have been massacred just because they own property as in Tulsa and Slocum. People were massacred just because they wanted to move into all white neighborhoods. And people were massacred because they simply wanted better working conditions and jobs. It's frightening to know that, that that happened in our own country. Uh, American exceptionalism is definitely not something that we as Black African Americans experience. So true. But that brings us to the end of this episode. So if you want to catch up with us online, listen to older episodes, check out our course on systemic racism, or just pick up some t-shirts, mugs, and whatever fun stuff we have on the website, please visit us at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it Say it and confront it.